Welcome to part two of the two-part story, Fort Worth It. If you haven't listened to part one, stop, go back and do that so that you can get all caught up and get the background and history of this whole thing. But I talk about a building in Fort Worth whose first use was the headquarters for one of the strongest organizations of its time in the 1920s, the KKK. In the previous episode, I talk about Fort Worth's strong connection with the KKK and how it came to be that this racist group of bigots ran the city. I also talk about the building itself and where it stands and how there are people who want it to be torn down. There's an interview with a passionate resident of Fort Worth that you can listen to, and she brings up some great points. Shout out to my new friend, Jacquanisha, who, by the way, is afraid of crickets, even though they're both the same height. I'm kidding. Relax. At the end of the episode, I mentioned an organization that wants to keep the building up for a very intriguing purpose. I was able to have a conversation with one of the heads of this organization, and he explained to me that he thinks that the building should be reformed and turned into an arts-focused racial healing center. Yo, guess what? I ain't in Texas no more. <laughs> I'm actually kind of sad about it. I made a lot of new friends in Fort Worth. You know, it's crazy. And for those of you who are listeners and work in the entertainment industry, actually any field of work or situation where you have to come together and then, you know, leave each other, um, you come together and you work towards supporting a world and you know that eventually it's going to be over. And when it is, you have to say goodbye, but you never really anticipate it. I, I have to admit that I'm not too good at goodbyes. Like I don't function well with them. So, you know what? I won't focus on a goodbye right now. I'll focus on a hello. Hello. You're tuning in to Meanwhile on the Farm. I am your host, Corey, and I love being your host. Uh, Meanwhile on the Farm is a podcast dedicated to getting back to the subject at hand. Each episode, I find a story or situation or issue, usually current, and explore it at the intersection of race. I take that story, situation, or issue, I unpack it, and then offer you some actual things that you can do from where you are. Because believe it or not, your voice does absolutely matter. You do not have a small voice. So stop thinking that if you are thinking that. Then, after I break it all down, I give you some ways that you can break it all down. I bring to light an individual or a group of individuals who are actively doing some things right. Last week, I brought up two middle school dudes who have their own bakery and helping to reform a hospital in Zimbabwe by way of the book that they've written and they're taking college courses. Yes, I felt like a bum. But it's, inspi- it's inspiring. It inspired me to get off of my duff. Um, I actually ordered my copy of the book and I'm excited to check it out. So um, as I mentioned before, today's episode is part two of a two part story. If you haven't listened to the first part, I strongly encourage you to listen to the first part. In other words, go listen to the first part if you haven't listened to this part <laughs> before you listen to this part, actually, because um, we're going to plow ahead. Now, I'm not sure if this episode is going to have cussing in it, but. I did just eat half a bag of Australian-made licorice twist, strawberry flavor, so I can't be held responsible. Either way, enter at your own risk. (laughs) Okay. So before I get into all this, I want to make a couple of corrections to the last episode. Now, after I spoke with the individual who I'll mention later, he gave me a clearer perspective on the whole thing. Um, So let's get that squared away. Okay, first, I mentioned that there was an organization that asked for the delay in the demolition of this building. They did not. The lawyer for Sugar Plum, uh, the people who own the building now, um, they they aren't necessarily in a rush to tear it down. So while this organization was happy about the delay, they didn't necessarily ask for it. 
they saw a unique opportunity and wanted to take action. So that's one. The other is that the organization about which I'm going to be speaking was the only organization that wants to reform the building. The truth is they aren't alone in this endeavor and they don't want to be alone in this endeavor. So that's the second one. And the third one is one time I said the address was 1021 Main Street. Another time I said it was 1021 North Main Street. It's 1021 North Main Street. So. All right. Now that that's out of the way, let us begin so that I can stop calling them an organization that wants to save the building. I'll let you know that the name of the organization that wants to save the building is DNA Works. Uh, for those of you who are wondering if we'll be hearing an interview from them, we won't. Not this episode, at least. Um, Daniel, who is more like a friend now, um, such an inspiring guy to talk to. Um, he said that they were still getting the pieces together and that he'd feel better talking after all that happened. And I think that's absolutely fair. But I did get a few things off the record, which I obviously won't be sharing here. But there were a few things that he was OK with me sharing and he gave me a lot of direction. So, Daniel, thank you for uh, all of that. So glad you are in my life now. Like I said before, you're stuck with me. <laughs> OK, DNA Works. Let's talk about them for a second. DNA Works is a Fort Worth arts and service organization that's dedicated to furthering expression and dialogue. The focus of the works that they produce are centered around issues like identity, culture, class, and heritage. Uh, they were founded in 2006, so they've been around for over a decade, and they create dance and theater and film to promote dialogue-based social justice action with local communities and communities across 15 countries. An equation that can be found in the bedrock of who they are and what they do is art equals ritual equals healing equals community. DNA has a few programs that they've started. Uh, one of them is the Hip Hop Theater Initiative. This was born as a response to Tisch students at NYU, them expressing their desire to marry their acting training with their love for hip hop and commitment to that particular culture. Another program is Write It Out Fort Worth. This program is a celebration of National Coming Out Day, which includes readings of commissioned plays by local writers who participated in DNA Works' 48-hour intergenerational LGBTQ playwriting retreat. Another program is the Borders Project, which is a series of performances and events at and about different international border sites um, that's designed to challenge the history and effects of borders. OK, and the last one is Project History. Now, this one you're going to have to dig into yourself because it's on their site and it's interactive and it's um, rather extensive and better experience than being told about it. And I'm, I'll give you their website at the end of this uh, podcast. But. Those are a, a few of the programs that they've started. Now, I had been emailing back and forth with Daniel, and I caught him in the middle of preparing for a stage reading of Toni Morrison's play from 1985, Dreaming Emmett, which is a big deal. It was her first play, as a matter of fact. Um, to make the connection, Toni Morrison wrote the novel Beloved, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 1988. This is the same Beloved that was turned into a movie with Oprah Winfrey, Danny Glover, Richards, who was born in 1920 and left her earthly body in 2000, just two years after the movie premiered. And of course, the lovely and super talented Tandy Newton. Uh, Dreaming Emmett was first performed in 1986. Now, after that first production, Morrison is said to have destroyed all known video recordings of Dreaming Emmett and copies of the script. That's why this was a big deal, because DNA Works had gotten permission from Tony to bring 
this play back out. Um, I said Tony like I knew her casually, Tony Morrison. <laughs> and I think I heard that they're planning an actual production of the, of the play. Um, I'm bringing that up to say that right off the bat, my first experience with DNA Works is this bold, esoteric piece, this uncharted territory, okay? My first impression of them was that they like to take things and break ground. I didn't know how right I was. Now, speaking of Emmett Till, yesterday was his birthday, so happy birthday, little guy. I know you didn't make it past 14, but you're forever in our hearts. If you don't know the story of Emmett Till, you should look it up. So who's at the head of this operation, DNA Works? I told you about Daniel Banks. Co-founder with Daniel is Adam McKinney. Now, I'm going to give you a little background on these two. Okay, first up is Daniel Banks. Daniel Banks is actually Daniel Banks' PhD, and he is a wealth of creativity. He's worked at National Theater of Uganda in Kampala, the Belarusian National Drama Theater in Minsk, the Market Theater in Johannesburg, South Africa, Playhouse Square, Cleveland, the Oval House and Teatro Technis in London. Uh, he's also worked with the NYC and DC Hip Hop Theater Festivals and workshops of new projects with Bay Area Playwrights Festival, Playmakers Repertory Company, and McCarter Theater. He was a Sally B. Goodman Fellow. He served as a choreographer, movement director for productions at New York Shakespeare Festival, Shakespeare in the Park, Theater for a New Audience, Singapore Repertory Theater, Aaron Davis Hall in Harlem, and for Maurice Sendak slash The Night Kitchen. Daniel was the associate director for Namby E. Kelly's adaptation of Toni Morrison's Jazz, so there's another connection there, at Baltimore Center Stage, directed by Kwame Kwe Arma. He served on the dramaturgical team for Camille Brown and Dancer's Black Girl Linguistic Play and Inc., which is touring. And he's directed DNA Works touring production of Ha Mapa, The Map, choreographed and performed by DNA Works co-director Adam McKinney, Hollow Roots by Christina Anderson, and The Real's James Bond was Dominican by and with Christopher Rivas. So he's stacked, all right? He served at, on the faculty of Tisch School of the Arts at NYU, the MFA in Contemporary Performance at Naropa University, the MA in Applied Theater, City University of New York, and as Chair of Performing Arts at the Institute of American Indian Arts, Santa Fe, New Mexico. There is a reason why I'm giving you his bio and giving you all this information. Stay with me. Now, Adam. The other co-founder, Adam McKinney. Adam is a dancer and choreographer who's danced with Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater, uh, Bejart Ballet Lausanne in Switzerland, Alonzo King Lines Ballet, Cedar Lake Contemporary Ballet, Buglisi Foreman Dance, and Milwaukee Ballet Company. All prominent and prestigious companies for which to dance, okay? Adam has led dance works throughout the literal world. He has received an Asylum Arts Award for his reconciliation artwork about the Fort Worth lynching of Fred Rouse. He's gotten the Texas Christian University Research and Creative Activity Award for site-specific dance performances in West African slave castles. He's gotten the New York University's President's Service Award for dance work with populations who struggle with heroin addiction. Jerome Foundation's Emerging Choreographers Grant for dance work with Ethiopian Israeli communities is another thing that he's gotten. 
Uh, he's a national artist, teacher fellow for the Borders Project at the Mexico slash U.S. border and lead New Mexico, an educational fellowship for teachers and leaders of color creating change to charter education in New Mexico. Now, Adam has a BFA in dance performance with high honors from Butler University and an MA in dance studies with concentrations in race and trauma theories from NYU Gallatin. Right now, Adam is an assistant professor of dance in the School for Classical and Contemporary Dance at TCU. And he teaches courses in classical ballet, modern dance with a Horton emphasis and choreography. His areas of research include dance performance, site-specific dance, mixed ability dance, transgenerational trauma, dance and PTSD, queer dance, black dance, Jewish dance, and dance with veterans. Dance, the dance, dance, dance. Okay, so those are the founders. Now, why did I go through all that? Here's the reason why I highlight their accomplishments. Okay, the idea is that they're going to take this symbol of collected hate and bigotry and give it a final sentence to heal. Without them connected to that idea, forget that I mentioned them, it seems like a monumental task on its own because you know what they're up against? People who have feelings like Jaquanisha who see something about this building and see something like the LSPK and company building and want to tear it down. And when I say up against, I don't mean like an opponent. I mean to say that those are the people that need to be healed, who are hurting that need to be touched and reformed. And it would take a certain type of person, a certain type of, of group of individuals to take on this task. Now, this is huge. Emotions are high. They always have been for black people. And the thing is, yes, it may always be known as the former KKK building. But is that a bad thing? Now, I put it like this. I think people can change. There's a lot of reasons why I think that they can. But bottom line is, I think that people can change. I think they can grow and develop and become better and best versions of themselves. That said, it's possible that we could be known as the person who used to be fill in the blank here. But does that change our new version of ourselves? Does that devalue it? In other words, is it actually beneficial for this place to be known as the former KKK building? because it is now known as the current racial healing center and home for arts organizations? Is it a way of describing the past in order to highlight the present, which could be a setup for the future? According to Daniel, absolutely. He says that it's important to understand pain because pain cannot be ignored. The reformation of this building for him is a way to keep from just erasing traumatic history. It's a way to confront it and deal with it with all sides involved. So this place isn't just for black people. It's for white people too who need to understand and learn how they can help in this healing process. The new center, I mean, I don't, I don't know exactly know what, they're, uh, what they'd call it, but it wouldn't just be for DNA Works. That was another interesting thing. There were a few other organizations that Daniel mentioned that don't have homes right now in Texas. And the reason why they don't have homes is because in order for them to get funding, they have to already have $500,000 in funding. I believe I said that right. Daniel, if you're listening and I said that wrong, let me know so I can correct it. <laughs> but I do know that the point of what he was saying is that they can't get funded because they're not funded. That doesn't even make any sense. But what if those places had a home? So this building would not just be for one group. About it being an art center for racial healing, 
at the helm, there has to be an individual or set of individuals who first understand trauma and secondly, understand the arts. If only there were two people who could do that. Now, I said this before, and it's not just DNA Works that wants to see this happen. Other organizations have expressed their interest. And at the actual hearing, when the 180 days were granted, there were over 100 people at the hearing. Now, it's rare that people even show up to those things, let alone 100 people. So obviously, there is support here for this. There was a really uh, human moment that Daniel shared with me when I was uh, meeting with him. He listened to part one of this uh, episode of this story, and he heard Jaconisha's interview, and he said, I just feel for her. And that was important to me. Um, he didn't get mad. He didn't get upset. He didn't not validate her feelings. He said, I just feel for her. And that is the type of attitude that can change things. The attitude that says, hey, I hear your pain and I care about it and I want to help you heal it. And again, I go back to the fact that Daniel and Adam have studied this stuff, this exact thing. So they're armed with vision, but they're also armed with the knowledge. Now, last episode, I talked about a few deaths to black men that were caused by the KKK. I want to mention the name Fred Rouse. Now, I said the name earlier, as I mentioned, a subject on which one of Adam's projects uh, was based. But I'm going to get into that so you know who Fred Rouse is. Fred Rouse was a black man born in Texas in the mid-ish to late 1800s, like 1868, I think it was. So it's likely that his parents were slaves. Plus, they were from Mississippi. So Fred Rouse was a non-union worker who lived in the black downtown of Fort Worth. Now, in December of 1921, there was a strike for union workers. And where he was working at the time, which is a packing plant, there were tons of picketers. So one group was mad about something, these union workers, and another group came in and kept working, the non-union group, which was mostly comprised, if not totally comprised, of blacks and immigrants, keeping things going. This kind of made them more upset because the whole point was to prove that they were needed and it was being proven that they weren't needed. Now, one particular day in early December of 1921, the union picketers started rioting with the non-union workers, according to the Star-Telegram. And two of these picketers, who were brothers, Tom and Tracy, both white, confronted Fred, this black union worker. Now, according to some reports, Fred drew a pistol and shot the brothers. One was seriously injured and the other was slightly wounded. If you're a white supremacist, you might say, well, why did he have a gun in the first place? You might be the person that also says, don't take away my guns. But it made me think, why was he carrying a gun to work? Why did he have a gun on his person? I think it's because he was scared. But of what? Now, I think you can draw a pretty accurate conclusion about that. A black man walking past a line of angry white men who were angry because a black man was doing their jobs. You can imagine the words that he was called or that any of these black people were called. And if you can't, I'll defer you to Nancy Goodman of North Carolina, who just yesterday called a table of black people in a restaurant, stupid niggers, mind you, 
This is after she said that she had black friends and loved them. Bigot Goodman was confronted about this by a news reporter, and she said, this is a quote, I used that word because they forced me to use it. And when she was asked if she could see why that what she said was incredibly offensive, she said, yes, that's why I used it. Now, I'm not trying to give Bigot Goodman press. What I'm trying to do is communicate that there were Bigot Goodmans in male form who were even bolder with the way they responded to blacks back in the day. There was no respect for them. Okay, In the newspaper article, Fred was actually referred to as Negro. So these two men that he shot, he didn't kill. I wasn't there, so I don't know if this is true or not, but I believe that he didn't shoot to kill them on purpose. He wanted to scare them like they scared him. He wanted to let them know, hey, I can only take so much before I do something drastic. And the fact that the gun was there meant he did fear for his life. So once the brothers were shot, Fred was arrested by the police. But somehow, some way, Fred was pulled away from the police and these strikers were given enough time to beat him. They beat him so badly that they put him in the hospital. Now, remember we talking about the KKK being a part of the police? White supremacy being a part of the police? It's not hard to imagine that those police officers allowed this to happen to Fred. Not just jerked around, but trampled on, beaten, stabbed, to the point where they had a justice of the peace nearby because they thought he was dead. Then they threw him in the back of a wagon and left. Now, again, he was arrested. Police had him, but now he was left for dead. So he was taken by ambulance to the hospital. Now, over the next few days, this is how this was stacked. If the seriously injured brother had died, Fred would be charged with murder. If the slightly injured brother lived, Fred would be charged with attempted murder. So damned if you do, damned if you don't. I'm trying to figure out what happened to the men who beat the shit out of Fred. They're probably at home with beers. Now, Fred was expected to, after all of that, make a full recovery. That was printed in the paper. They listed the uh, updates on all three men, the two brothers and Fred, and it was expected that Fred would make a full recovery. Now, he was in the hospital for almost a week. On December 11th, a white night nurse gave this account, which was found in the paper. I went to the basement and showed the men the ward where Fred Rouse was being treated. I said, he's the one in the corner, but overlooked the fact that there were two in the corner and the men went to the wrong corner. They began to feel the back and head of the other Negro, who was awfully scared and began to shout that he was not the one they wanted. I had told them before that for just two of them to go in and not all of them, stating that the Negro was weak and could not offer resistance. I then came back upstairs. I called their attention to the fact that he had no clothes and they replied that he would not need any. Pretty soon they came bringing out the Negro, Rouse, almost in a run. The Negro offered no resistance but was groaning very much. They went out the door with him and said goodnight to me. I have so much to say about Little Miss Night Nurse's testimony. 
the way she perceived black people as items, the way she thought that she was helping by telling only two of the men to snatch this healing man out of the bed, the fact that they were in the basement, the fact that she referred to these two men as Negroes. In any event, they took Fred to a tree and hung him from it. Then they pumped him full of bullets. It only took him a half hour. They called this tree Hangman's Tree. Nobody was charged. Fred was 53 years old. Why am I telling you all that? What happened to Fred Rouse was brutal. It was brutal, yes. But is it better to forget about it? Should we forget about what happened to Fred? Should we move on because it's too painful? And if the answer is no, we should remember. We shouldn't forget. We shouldn't move on. How do we remember? A memorial. Having a place where we can remember and look back. Yes, that tree has been chopped down. But something, and maybe eventually in Fort Worth, it's in Alabama right now, is set up to remind us to stay vigilant and that black lives matter. Yeah, I said it. Now, there was something else that Daniel said. Now, I'm not sure if this was a quote he heard from somewhere or if it was something that he made of himself. But he said, if we destroy sites of consciousness, what does it mean about our own conscious? And that affected me. And I thought just because we remove something from plain sight doesn't mean that its effects disappear. So that's all fine and great, Corey. But something like this, has it ever been done before? The ICSOC, International Coalition of Sites of Conscious. The International Coalition of Sites of Conscious is the only global network of historic sites, museums, and memory initiatives that connect past struggles to today's movements for human rights. What they do is they turn memory into action. And all that's from their site. So they believe in turning the page. Pulling further from their site, a site of conscious is a place of memory, such as a historic site, place-based museum or memorial, that prevents this erasure from happening in order to ensure a more just and humane future. Not only do sites of conscious provide safe spaces to remember and preserve even the most traumatic memories, but they enable their visitors to make connections between the past and the related contemporary human rights issues. So here we have a whole organization dedicated to this very thing. This organization was founded in 1999 and is the only worldwide network of sites. So this is all they do. Mothers from different sides of the Civil War in Sri Lanka, 1983 to 2009, are sharing their stories in community workshops that employ holistic, integrated, multidisciplinary approaches to address issues of truth, justice, and reconciliation. Youth from every region of the United States are using the history of the civil rights movement to amplify their voices in the fight to make educational opportunities more equitable. Police officers from both sides of the conflict in Northern Ireland are telling their stories in an oral history project designed to foster trust and understanding among the two factions. And thousands of rural school children are being educated through a traveling exhibit about the Civil War in Sierra Leone, 1991-2002, a war that took the lives of 70,000 people, but which many adults are hesitant to discuss because they fear opening old wounds. In this way, a concentration camp in Europe becomes a catalyst for discussions on modern xenophobia. A Gulag Museum in Russia highlights repression of free speech now. 
and a 200-year-old slave house in Africa sparks action to help the 40 million people who are still enslaved today. Conscious grants us the awareness to solve problems. So, the short answer is yes. Yes, this is possible. And according to many, necessary. It's an acknowledgement of the past and the feelings connected to it and a way to embrace and induce change and healing. And now, DNA Works and these other organizations have 180 days to raise funding and additional community support and make this happen. So, how can you help? Number one, go to the DNA Works Instagram and follow them at DNA Works Arts. That's work with an S, art with an S. DNA Works Arts. Like I said, they're doing some pretty bold and important work. See what kinds of work they're doing and support. Number two, if you're in New York, they're bringing that show, The Real James Bond was Dominican, because the fact is he really was. Uh, they're bringing it to New York. I'm sure on the Instagram they'll post uh, dates and times and things like that. So, again, go follow them on Instagram. Number three, email them at info at dnaworks.org and ask them, how can I help? Let them know you heard on the podcast and that you'd like to combine your effort with theirs. Now, I'm not sure what kind of action steps they have, but reach out and connect with them. If you're an organization that works with, you know, raising money and you want to connect with them, offer that to them. Whatever you have, you can offer that to them. And I know Daniel will be super grateful for what you have to contribute to the process. And number four, find them on Facebook and click like on their page. So basically what I'm saying is get connected with this group and they'll keep you updated. Um, they have a lot of great things planned over the next 180 days for you to be kept in the loop about. But you got to get in the loop to be kept in the loop. Does that make sense? So there is that. Those are some simple things, but eventually it's going to get to the place to where you can actively contribute. And again, like I said, if there are things that you know that you can give to contribute to this effort, whether it be finances or another organization that you can connect them with, go for it. Be proactive. And now it's time for the right stuff. Our The Right Stuff stories today has a little bit of an artistic flair to it. Um, so have you ever been on vacation and thought, you know what, I wanna upgrade my photo game? Or you take a couple's vacation and you look back and all you see is photos that are selfies and the lighting's kinda bad and one of y'all look good and one of y'all doesn't and you, you're too scared to be that person who's like, excuse me, can you take a picture of us please? <laughs> well, there's a black owned startup and they've gotten a good solution for that. Now, this is really cool. What this company does is it connects travelers with photographers. The name of this company is Dovetail Experience. The names of the owners are Shihan and Wilmarie Fisher. Um, and the way they started is that they would travel every year around the world to renew their vials. Yes, black love. Uh, and every time they went on vacation, they would hire photographers to take photos for them. Now, through that, they built this big network of photographers local to where they were, and now they have photographers in more than 60 international locations. 
So what you do is you choose a location, and I actually went to the site, and there are tons of locations, and the range of dates you'll be there. Then you connect with a photographer for a one to three hour photo shoot, and within five days, you get your photos. So what's so great about this is you work with local photographers who know the area so they can tell you about all the little nooks and crannies and special places and things like that. And you're also shooting with people who know how to work with darker skin tones. So black people, they got you. Uh, Dovetail Experience even suggests colors like of clothes that work for your skin tone. So that's like a little added bonus. And you don't have to be on a honeymoon or baby moon or anniversary or whatever. It could be a birthday. It could be a friend's trip, even a solo trip. Listen, if you're out feeling yourself and you're like, for my birthday, I'm going to Nairobi. I need a photographer because I'm trying to get these pictures in looking 40 and fabulous. DovetailExperience.com. Um, so that's our uh, right stuff story for today. And that concludes part two of the Fort Worth It story. I want to give a huge shout out to Daniel for sitting with me and chatting with me. Um, he mentioned that he hasn't talked to the media about things yet. So I'm so appreciative that he was willing to sit down and have a conversation with me about all this. So thank you so much, Daniel. Be sure to come find me next week on Meanwhile on the Farm, where I'll be talking about a new topic. I like it when you listen. Now, as I mentioned, my friend Christian sent me this story to begin with, and you can do the same thing if you have a story. Now, I got a new email address, y'all. Like to hear it? Hit go. Corey at MeanwhileOnTheFarm.com. Now, if I can unpack it, I will. Not for real. If you're feeling it, subscribe to Meanwhile on the Farm. And then share this with the last person you texted. <laughs> just send them a link. Just, just the next message you send them, just send them a link. And for all you SoundCloud peeps, I just got on SoundCloud. And all the episodes, including this one, are there for you to dig into. Another place that you can follow me is on Instagram at meanwhile.on.the.farm. Go follow the account for some other things too, like midweek news and posts, and of course, the action steps I mentioned earlier. And if you're so inclined, please consider being a monthly or a one-time sponsor of this podcast. And if you can't, know that you listening is enough to keep me going anyway. Again, I'm Corey. This has been Meanwhile on the Farm, and I think it's dope that you spent time with me today. Listen, if you can't change it, don't stress. If you can change it, don't stress where I'm going with this. Life is sometimes a lot easier than we make it out to be. Don't or do. Go or stay. Hold on or let go. But whatever you do, commit to it. And remember, if you're silent, it speaks volumes. Peace. <laughs>